if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Colossians, we are going to continue being there. And today we will be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. You know, many people in Washington would remember exactly where they were when Mount St. Helens erupted. I, uh, I watched videos last night trying to wrap my mind around what that would have been like. But when it happened, the shockwave had said rattled windows for hundreds of miles around. Before the eruption took place, scientists that were monitoring the peak, weren't sure when it was going to go off or how big the blast would be. But all the warning signs were there of this live volcano. It was really just a matter of time. Not an if, but a when. And so the news outlets and the local media, they issued all types of warnings, and they were reporting what was happening with Mount St. Helens to everyone. The time kept ticking by didn't erupt. And so people became less and less concerned. And they became a lot more, I guess you could say, arrogant or bold. And they, they started going <coughs> camping and they were taking photographs and they just kept inching closer and closer and closer to Mount St. Helens. And then in, on May 7th, 18th of 1980, the unthinkable happened. It had been dormant since 1857, but on that day it erupted, <clears throat> spewing ash, killing upwards of 30 people. Why did that happen? Why were those 30 people killed? Because they didn't heed the warnings. They couldn't plead ignorance. They just chose to ignore the warnings. And in this morning's passage, what we're going to see is that we have been given warnings in God's word, and it would do us well to listen to the warnings that God gives so that we don't fall victim. <coughs> you could say that what we are going to see here in Colossians today is a warning against a, a three-pronged volcano that can destroy It's a warning to us to avoid any false teaching, to avoid any teaching that goes outside of God's word, no matter how much it promises to bring you closer to God. Because that is exactly what we're going to see tonight, that there was a teaching, there was a teaching circulating to the Colossians believers that was promising to bring them closer to God, promising to bring them into a place of deeper spiritual maturity. But in the end, it did the complete opposite. And so if you would, let's read our section of Scripture today. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, 
being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head in which the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If you have died with Christ in the elementary principles of the world, <coughs> why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, do not, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatments of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The first thing we're going to see this morning, the first false teaching that we see is found in verses 16 and 17, and it is a warning against legalism. It is a warning against legalism. You see it here. No one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. See, we've been seeing through the book of Colossians that there were these false teachers, and they were saying that it wasn't enough to be a simple Christ-following Christian. In today's world, we would say it's not enough to be a Bible-believing Christian. You need something more. You need to do a little extra. Belief's great, but it's insufficient. Paul's confronting this up front. He's going to show how this is foolishness. See, let me define legalism for us this morning, so make sure we're operating from the same definition. Legalism is not biblical obedience. See, if you try to hold somebody accountable to simply obeying what the scriptures say, it's very common to say, oh, you're being a legalist. That's not what legalism is, brothers and sisters. Legalism is when you do certain things in order to try to be approved by God, accepted by God, earn God's favor. It's saying, I'll do this so that you will think better of me. Legalism is faith alone is not enough to be accepted by God. Therefore, I must do these things. These false teachers we see here were calling these Colossian believers to go back and start following Old Testament ceremonial and dietary laws. Verse 16, you see food and drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath day. If you were to go to Leviticus chapter 16, you would see some of these, these laws being unpacked. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul nails this. Romans 14, 17, Paul says, <coughs> For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, these false teachers were somehow saying, we need to go back which we see today. We see this today all the time. We need to go back to the church father. What did the church fathers do? What did the monastics do? What did the medievals do? Man has a deep desire to be graded on performance. 
And these these, these false teachers in Colossae were saying, you got to do these laws. You have to perform these acts in order to really be spiritually mature and be close to God. But we have been seeing here in Colossians 2, in these first 15 verses, that by faith in Christ, we have been filled in Christ. By faith in Christ, we have been made alive in Christ. By faith in Christ, we have been forgiven in Christ. And by faith in Christ, we are victorious in Christ. And so by faith, we have all that we need. We don't need to go back in time and put ourselves under the law once more. And so Paul says here in 16, therefore, no one is to judge you. That word there for judge, it means to disqualify, to exclude. And Paul's encouraging his brothers and sisters and warning them simultaneously. Don't let these false teachers who know nothing of the gospel try to disqualify you based on man-made rules and traditions. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to put yourself under the yoke of the law. You don't need to put yourself under the yoke of man-made rules and man-made traditions to be accepted by God. All you must do is come to the cross and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be perfectly accepted now and for all time. And so Paul tells them, don't let them judge you. Don't let them exclude you. Don't let them disqualify you. Sadly, this is a teaching that's still prominent in so many churches. You don't get to be into the inner circle of the religious elite if you don't do certain things. No, they don't have that kind of authority. Christ says that you are accepted and will be mature in Christ by faith in him alone. See, when Paul says food and drink here in verse 16, in the Old Testament, there were certain dietary laws. Certain foods were classified as clean. Certain foods are classified as unclean. Part of that reason was to separate them from the neighboring people group <coughs> to show that they were set apart for God. But under the new covenant that Christ has purchased to buy his blood, dietary laws no longer apply. Under the new covenant by faith in Christ, there is no longer certain foods you can't eat and certain foods you can't eat. But this is what the false teachers are saying. You need to abstain from certain foods. See, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, Jesus goes into a teaching here. And to summarize the teaching, he said, it's not what goes into a mouth, into a man that defiles him, but what proceeds from his heart. Eating bacon doesn't make you 
dirty before God. Being lustful does. Eating shrimp doesn't make you unclean before God. Harboring hate and anger and resentment does. The false teachers are trying to put them under the law, but Christ, we see through the Gospels, begins to unpack the true meaning of these things. But they were saying, if you do those things, you're not going to be accepted, you're unclean. But we also see this in Acts chapter 10, where Peter has a vision given to him by the Lord. So it wasn't simply that Jesus taught these, but we see this further supported. So in Acts chapter 10, let's look at specifically at verse 15. Peter has his vision. And in verse 15, we see, again, a voice came to him and said a second time, what God has cleansed no longer considers defiled. In that vision there, we see a putting away of the dietary law. God has declared it clean. See, we're no longer set apart for God and marked off as the people of God based on what's on our dinner plate. We're shown to be set apart for God now by faith in Christ. People look at us and they no longer say, are those those, those God people because of the foods we eat? No, they should be saying, are those those Christ-following people because they live by faith in a faith that shows itself in righteousness? Paul then says festivals here in verse 16, or in respect to a festival. See, these are the Jewish celebrations, the Passover, the Pentecost, the the Festival of Lies and, and the Festival of Booths. Leviticus 23 unpacks lots of these festivals. And then it says new moon here in verse 16. The new moon was the first day of the month, and that was often when Jewish people we would see would offer certain sacrifices. Numbers 10.10 shows us that. Psalm 81.3 shows us that. And then there was the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. It was the day in which the Lord had rested. And in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, we see God saying to set apart the Sabbath day as holy and to rest from work. See, none of these were bad things. These were good things that God had prescribed for his people. <coughs> but we're going to see here why Paul is saying we no longer live under them. Again, look, now look at the beginning of verse 17. Things which are only a shadow of what's to come. You see, all of those dietary laws, the festivals, the new moon sacrifices, the Sabbath day, they were a shadow pointing to the reality. And that reality is the Lord Jesus Christ. They were good. They had a purpose. But they were always meant to be temporary. You can say they were signposts pointing to the coming of the Messiah. But these false teachers, instead of pointing them to the reality, are wanting them to continue to live in the shadows. They were actually telling them to pursue things that are pushing them farther from Christ, not closer to Christ. 
Listen to what it says in the book of Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. See, these false teachers were guilty of that. Old Testament rules, Old Testament festivals, they are good and they are, there's much we can learn from them as followers of Christ now when they are understood in their proper context. But we live in Christ under the new covenant, and so these things are descriptive, no longer prescriptive. The substance, the reality it says here, belongs to Christ. Food and drink. Let's take that first point. Well, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Again, we read that previously. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How about festivals? Well, all of the festivals are always pointing to the reality of Christ and the true deliverance that would be given. You know, I was a part of a church that shared their building with a Messianic congregation. And the Messianic congregation still celebrates some of these festivals. I'm not going to say that celebrating these festivals is sinful and wrong. If they're done more as a remembrance of the historical story that God was bringing about. We've gone to Seder dinners and we see how that's fulfilled in Christ. Especially for our, our, our brothers and sisters of, of Jewish descent. It's so wrapped up also part of their national, you know, uh, ethnic culture. And it's good to sometimes maybe experience them to see what it would have been like for the, for the early church in the Old Testament and how those things bring us to Christ, how they were, were pointing. But they must always be done with an eye kept on Jesus and knowing that they've been fulfilled. They should never be done with a sense of they are going to bring me closer to God. And honestly, if you look at what Paul's saying here, for those of us who are not Jewish, Paul seems to be saying, why celebrate a shadow when you can have the reality? We should be celebrating Christ because he's here. And then he says, new moon. Well, let's, let's think about those festivals. Let's think about the Passover festival. Why would we celebrate Passover as, an Old as the Old Testament brothers and sisters did when Christ, the true Passover lamb, has come? Why would we keep dietary laws when Christ has made all things clean by his shed blood? Why would we celebrate the festival of lights when Jesus is the true light of the world and he is shining radiantly now? New moon, right? These are the first sacrifices. Why would we seek to celebrate or make any sacrifices when Christ has made the one true and ultimate sacrifice for all? And then this is the Sabbath here. This is where it gets a little trickier. Do we, is the Sabbath a command to uphold or not? There's debate there as to whether the Sabbath is to be kept in the same way. 
We do know that some things change. The Old Testament saints would have had the Sabbath day on Saturday. For Christ was risen on Sunday. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see that this becomes the normative practice then for the church to no longer celebrate the, the Sabbath on Saturday, but to now to celebrate the risen Lord on Sunday. Notice, we don't even call our Sundays a Sabbath. We call it the Lord's Day. And nowhere in the New Testament are we warned about not keeping the Sabbath. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to keep the Sabbath. Rather, we are told to gather with God's people that worship the risen Christ. And they do that on Sunday, the Lord's Day. These things were shadowed, but Christ is the substance. Let me, let's illustrate this. Imagine there's a little boy whose father is deployed at war. And the dad sends pictures and they watch videos. We've seen those videos and they're great. Then they get to the airport. And the dad is standing right behind the boy. And the boy sees his father's shadow. And instead of turning around and gripping his father and hugging him, he tries to hug the shadow. You could just turn around. The real thing's right behind you, little man. And yet, these Colossian false, these false teachers in Colossae were saying, go hug the shadow. Don't hug the reality. You see, they were shadows and Christ is the substance because what we've been seeing in the book of Colossians is the superiority and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he is all in all. False teachers are passing judgment, which is funny because last time I checked, there's only one judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his standard is the word, not these false teachers. It's always all been pointing to him. We see this in Luke 24. Jesus says that everything written in the Old Testament was finding its fulfillment, was pointing back to Christ. That includes festivals. That includes sacrifices. That includes dietary ceremonial laws. But this is what legalism does. Legalism wants to keep you trapped in the doing so that you can be earning. And I get it. Legalism is extremely attractive for some people. I, I've often said that I'm probably a recovering legalist. It gives you the appearance outwardly of being a very spiritual person. Look at what I'm doing. Really makes you look holier than thou. The legalism can never earn you God's favor. Only the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. What legalism does, it takes good things and perverts them. What does that look like today? Spiritual disciplines. I, I love liturgy. I love dis spiritual disciplines. But we can get to the place where I'm reading my Bible because if I don't read my Bible, God is dis dis displeased with me. And I missed three days on my Bible reading plan, so I'm going to catch up and read six today. That happens to me. Man, I didn't memorize my scripture verse last week. So I'll memorize three verses this week so I can really get on top of it. Or we become slaves to systems where, rather than slaves to the Savior. 
again, even you know, yesterday the brother shared that he has found a liturgical method of prayer that has structured prayer times throughout the day and that aids him. And I, I, I amend that. There is nothing wrong with that. But what becomes wrong is if you think that if you miss one or you don't do it that way, God is displeased with you. We are accepted, loved by faith in Christ. When Jesus was baptized and he came out of the waters, God the Father said, Behold my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And by faith we are in Christ. And so by faith the Father looks upon you and says, Behold my son or daughter, in whom I am well pleased. He is well pleased in you by, because of the faith you have in the Son, not because of the things you do. None of these things should ever be done because we think we're going to earn, because when they're done that way, all they do is puff up with pride. We begin to look down our nose at people and think, well, you know, if you did it the way I did it, God would, look, God would be more pleased with you. Here's what we have to remember, and why we have to be so on guard against legalism. Because if you live according to the law, you end up living as if Jesus never came. Obedience is not done ever to earn the favor of God, but to express our love to We do what we do not to earn. We do what we do to express. That we love you, Lord. We trust you. We submit to your word. And I think what legalism why legalism is so deadly and why what these false teachers here are teaching was so deadly to the Colossian believers is because in the end, it leaves us denying with our lives what we are professing to be true with our mouths, that Jesus Christ has come and has fulfilled all the righteous requirements needed to have a saving relationship with God. In Christ, it's no longer due, but done. So that's the first point there. The warning of legalism against legalism. Now in verses in 18 and 19, Paul gives us another warning, and it's the warning against mysticism. Look at 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he's seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now we see a shift. The pendulum swings to the other way. If legalism was saying, I'm going to make sure I cross every T and dot every I of the law, mysticism says, I don't need the law. I have a special connection to God. Because what mysticism is pursuing, mysticism is saying you should pursue a deeper relationship, a deeper religious experience with God apart from his ordained means of grace. Mysticism says you draw near to God and it's all based on feelings and your inner truths and dreams and visions that you think you had given to you by God. It's a highly subjective way to approach God and is not grounded in any objective truth that's found in his word. The focus shifts to experiential knowledge of God 
rather to the, than the revelation God has given us in his son and his word. And so let's look at verse 18 here. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting himself in basement in the worship of angels. This word defrauding, Paul saying, let nobody rob you of the prize. Let nobody say that you are unworthy of the prize that you have in Christ. It's, a, it's an athletic term. It was used of athletes being disqualified because they didn't compete according to the rules. These false teachers were trying to say, hey, step outside of God's word. Here's other ways to do it. And it's poisonous because it's leading them away from the prize, not to the prize. And he says these two terms, self-abasement and worship of angels. See, self-abasement, it's really the word humility. More, if we're going to be completely literal. But it's being used here in a negative sense. It's a false humility because pride is being taken in what they're saying is their humility. And it flows out of first here, this worship of angels. The worship of angels is sinful. The worship of anything other than the living God is sinful. But the worship of angels is sinful. And I want to highlight this. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. This is Jesus in the wilderness. And in chapter 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13, Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall serve him only. And look at the end of your Bible, at the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Then I fell at his feet. This is the Apostle John. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God for the worship of Jesus. For the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then Revelation 22, the last chapter of your Bible, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who is hearing and seeing these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The worship of angels is sinful. We are to worship God only. And even true angels that serve the living God, not fallen angels, will redirect your worship if you do it. In Hebrews chapter 6, when, when verses one, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, when Isaiah is in the throne room, we see the angels worship God. They sing there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Angels worship God. We don't worship angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And so these false teachers calling them to the worship of angels are calling them to sin. 
Now, most of us, I don't think, know anyone who's outright worshiping angels. But then again, we do. And I say this sympathetically for, for those, but the practice of worshiping of angels is very, very central in the Roman Catholic Church. They pray to angels. They bury angels in their yards to help them sell their homes. A preoccupation with guardian angels. We have to be on guard against this, especially the worship, especially the praying to angels. And I say this as somebody, I, I, I was as close to, to being a part of the Roman Catholic Church as one could get probably in not joining. And as I look back on some of these practices, I was enamored with so much of it, but so much of it took your focus off Jesus. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, we pray to angels. But listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We have a mediator. We have no need to ask angels to intercede. We have direct access to Christ Jesus himself, who is our mediator between the Father. Think about also this. When the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? He didn't direct them to pray to angels. He said, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul throughout his letters, they are prayed to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. You would think that if there was a purpose to pray to angels, Jesus would have given it to us. Paul would have modeled it to us. But we don't. And the only reason that the Roman Catholic Church would take that is out of a reference in the book of Tobit that is part of the Apocrypha, which is not a divinely inspired book. So, brothers and sisters, we cannot be, we cannot have this unhealthy infatuation with angels and be praying to them or worshiping them and somehow hoping they just act on our behalf. We have the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, risen Christ who we have access to. Then in verse 18, he goes from the worship of angels to visions. False visions come from false teachers. There are no visions anymore. There are no visions. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The visions, the dreams, these things that God used were always to authenticate and point to the message of Christ. And now that Christ has come and is ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we have his divinely inspired word, there is no need for visions. 
And again, this is mysticism. These false teachers were saying that the teachings of Christ were not sufficient. You needed something extra, something personal, something subjective, something that can't be authenticated. At the heart of it, they were saying Christ was not enough. It was an attack on the sufficiency of Christ and his word. And you know what? We see the same thing happening today. So many of good Christ-loving brothers and sisters in the church have bought into this visions and dreams mentality. There's an, an old song by a Christian band named Third Day. You guys may have heard of them. Right? Listen to this song called Revelation by Third Day. Listen to these lyrics. Give me a revelation. Show me what to do. Because I've been trying to find my way and I haven't got a clue. Maybe you're not reading your Bible. The revelation's there and all the instructions. You don't need to find some special revelation and some special key to unlock some new door of Christianity. God has given us his full word. The word of God tells us that in 1 Peter that we have all that we need for a life of godliness. 2 Peter 3.16, right? The, the inspired word has given us all that we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, these visions are subjective, and they live only in the mind of the person who's supposedly having them. And the problem is that they lack scriptural authority and scriptural interpretation. A few months ago, I had a friend reach out. Tragically, her brother died in a car accident. And she wanted to know whether her brother was in heaven or not. I can't answer that question with any definitiveness. So what I told her was if he had trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ truly, that he would be in heaven. A few days later, she reaches out. She says, I got a sign that he's in heaven. You got a sign. Okay. I just know he's there. I, was, I wanted a sign. I was asking God for a sign. He gave me a sign. What is this sign? Well, we have these old books on our shelf, and my son randomly picked one of these old books, and he opened it up to this old poem. It was an old poem about a brother caring for his sister. God gave me a sign to truly believe that was from God. You know what? <clears throat> so many of us, so many true Christ-following people buy into that kind of thing. I had a dream, and in this dream, this thing happened, and that thing happened, and it was weird. What do you think that means? I don't know. Maybe you had some bad Mexican food. I don't know. It caused up some bad dreams. It doesn't mean anything spiritual. That's not how the Lord works. He's given us his word. We can't allow this to deceive us. Mysticism lives in our churches. You know, we, I mean, again, I'm not trying to needlessly pick on the Roman Catholic Church, but people have a sign. The statue was crying. I saw Mother Mary. There was a church who legitimately saw Mother Mary in a tortilla. And so they saved the tortilla for years, and people would come and bow and pray because there was something special about this tortilla. that supposedly had the picture of Mary. Do you see how this is mysticism? This deep desire to have some different kind of experience that can produce something in our lives with God 
because we don't believe the sufficiency of his word is enough that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us to rightly divide the word of truth is enough. And so we go seeking something more. Even the way we talk, you know, God told me. God told you? Does he have a deep voice? Is it high-pitched? Was it in English? Like, what do you mean he told you? Book, did he give you, like, you mean book, chapter, verse, and context? Now, we may sense things God putting things in our heart, but we can't say those things are definitively true from God if they're not rooted in his word. Mysticism is creeping in. Another way mysticism is creeping into our churches, the same way it was seeking to creep into the church in Colossae, is with so much that happens in the charismatic movement. And in charismatic churches, I'm not saying all charismatic churches are off. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a vein of charismatic of the charismatic movement that is well beyond the, the words of Scripture. And they rely on dreams and visions and prophecies and new words. God's given a fresh word. And none of that is of God. And as a result of that, we see so many abuses take place in our churches and people hurt. And people then think, God hurt me. God didn't hurt you. Immature believers stepping outside the authority of God's word hurt you. And so we see here these visions, these worshiping of angels. What does it do? Being puffed up for nothing by the fleshly mind. Puffed up is prideful, fleshly mind, the unsaved, unregenerate, non-spirit-filled mind. See, these false teachers think they're being so open-minded and humble. You know, I don't, I don't want to handcuff God. Maybe he's doing a new thing. Just got to let him speak. And they think that's, that's humble, but it's pride. Because they're thinking they're not willing to submit to what has been declared authoritatively in God's word. Paul says the exact opposite. It's prideful and it's rooted in an unregenerate mind because you are saying somehow you know better how to draw near to God than God knows how to draw you near to him. Essentially, these false teachers are saying we know better than what God has already spoken. That is a vile form of pride and it is idolatry. Because you are worshiping your interpretations rather than trusting and submitting to what God has said. And so verses 18 and 19, we see here, this is mysticism. And in 19, he says, what is this result in not holding fast to the head? See, to worship angels, to seek visions, to seek fresh words is evidence that you are not abiding in Christ, that you are not holding fast to the head of the church, the one who governs it. Rather than being nourished by Christ, you are being malnourished by puffed-up, fleshly-minded false teachers. And this is always the case. If we do not hold fast to Christ, we become spiritually weak. Now, we saw in Colossians 1.18 and Colossians 2.10, that that phrase, the head of the church, that Christ is the head, it means that he holds the position of ultimate authority, of lordship. He is the Lord of Lord. He is the King of King and Lords of Lords of the whole earth, but he is the Lord, the King, the ruler of the church. He has the final say. He has all authority. 
He governs how we worship him. He governs it all. But the head is not only an authority. Think about this imagery that Paul is using of the human body. Christ being the head also means he's the one that nourishes the body. And what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that true growth, true maturity can only come through the nourishment that comes by Christ. The church will never be nourished by something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. This is the damning, vile, poisonous thing that is burning my heart. Sociology can help the church. Anthropology can help the church. Psychology, just go get yourself a good therapist. Well, that therapist's presuppositions, his hard training has nothing to do grounded in the word of God. It is grounded in the teachings, beliefs, and studies of godless men. But yeah, I'm sure that is really going to have Christ formed in you and fix your sin problem. No, it leaves you more lost and confused and in darkness. The only nourishment, strength, healing that can come to the body comes through the head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. This is why I'm, honestly, this is why most seminaries should be shut down. Because they're taking cues from the world. Most seminary counseling courses are filled with things that are not from the word of God. We should shut most seminaries down and put the training of ministers back into the hands of the local church. I'd rather take that simple Bible-believing Christian than doctor whatever with 14 letters behind his name who studied at the University of Chicago on psychology. Uh, it says, but yeah, but you know, I believe in, in Jesus. I'm sure you do, but you seem to believe in these other men have equal authority when it comes to the problems of my life. Your, all your problems are solved with the scriptures. If you don't believe that, you're a mystic. Because Christ is the head and he nourishes the body, it says here, the end of verse 19, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God, which is what we're saying. All true growth comes from God. Let's pick up the body example again. If all true growth doesn't come from God, imagine how useful is a foot if there's no head to the body? How useful is a hand if there's no head to the body? There's no such thing as a decapitated church. A decapitated church is a dead church. If you seek to disconnect yourself from the head that is Christ, you are a corpse. Christ must nourish and give life to the church, and that is why he's the head. Brothers and sisters, there's no spiritual maturity through mysticism. Mysticism promises to draw you closer to God, but it actually opens up, it opens you up to demonic attack. Lots of people think they're having a spiritual experience, and they're actually receiving some kind of experience from Satan in the, in the demonic realm. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15.
2 Corinthians 13 through 15. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We must abide in the Lord Jesus. We must devote ourselves to his word, to prayer, to the corporate worship, and to the Lord's table. And we submit. We have to guard ourselves from this. Churches have adopted <laughs> things like Enneagram tests to better understand yourself and has cultish roots. Churches promote contemplative prayer and yoga to empty yourself and be filled. Books like Jesus Calling seem to have a fresh word from God. I hear Christians talking about having, you know, just want to send some good energy and good vibes your way. All of that is an abomination. An abomination. And lastly here, and it's brief, he talks about aestheticism in verses 20 through 23. That's the last dangerous teaching, a warning against aestheticism. Aestheticism is, is rigorous self-denial, and in some cases, self-mortification. And while the, the Word of God does call us to self-denial, it doesn't call us to intentionally seek discomfort or pain as a means of somehow earning God's favor and purifying yourself. And there's a connection here between legalism and aestheticism. Because both are living themselves by a strict set of rules, trying to earn something instead of freely receiving something. I have found over the years aestheticism very, very appealing and attractive. The strict focus on discipline, the strict focus on something. You know why I found it so attractive? Because it's such a pride-filling thing. Look at how I have beat myself into submission for the Lord. Look at me. You see, when you look at what's being said here, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world, do you submit to yourself to decree, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch? It goes on. They view sanctification as happening by denying your, your body something. Instead of seeing sanctification as something that's done by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, by devotion and submission to his word. There's nothing in this aesthetic belief that Paul's outlining here that shows or has reference to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us, if you've died with Christ, You are dead. The old you is dead. You are dead to all these old ways of approval. By faith, you've died to the old and been made new. You've died to these governing forces, these man-made traditions, and, and these fallen angelic beings or false gods that they're calling you to worship. You are no longer a part of this world, but you are a citizen of heavenly Zion. You are no longer governed by man-made rules and practices but by the word of God. But Paul's not saying that rules and discipline are bad. What he's saying is believing that obeying certain rules and disciplines 
are somehow going to bring you to closer to God because you've earned it as bad. You and I are called to discipline ourselves for godliness. We're called to deny the flesh. But it's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit moving in us and by faith. When aestheticism seeks to pursue that on, your, on their own strength. And all these things are destined to perish. The things they're avoiding are, are, are perishing things. They have no true eternal value. That's what Paul says in verse 22, which deal with everything destined to perish with use. They're of no value. They can't deliver on what they promise. Church, holiness doesn't come through brutal self-denial. It comes through devotion to delighting in God according to his word. We don't need rules. We have new God's given us new hearts. He's put his law in our hearts. We're new creations in Christ. The spirit of God is in us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Therefore, you don't have to brutally, severely condition your body. Self-denial and self-discipline are not bad things in their proper place, but they are bad things when you focus on self-denial over the Savior. When you think doing these practices is what removes sin from your life, not the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful because sometimes we end up denying the very good things God has given us and we spurn his gifts. Self-denial can create a martyr syndrome. But the only time you feel right with God is if you're suffering and in pain. That's not biblical. God has, we are called to delight in the Lord and delight in all the good things he has given. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We deny our flesh its desire for sin, but we indulge the new inner man and the desires for godly things. Aestheticism, he says, has no value against fleshly indulgence. All it does is further feed. So let me end by saying people are easily attracted to new ways that they think are going to get them right with God. For some people, it's keeping a multitude of rules and traditions. To them, I say the grace of God is offered in Christ is sufficient. For others, visions, dreams, and experiences and intermediaries they think are going to be helpful. So then I say, you already have union with Christ, which is sufficient. And for those who are drawn more to aestheticism and self-denial and suffering to get right with God, you have died. Christ has suffered. You no longer need to suffer and put yourself through suffering because you have died with Christ and you've been risen into newness of life. Each of these, pro- each of these approaches overpromise and underdeliver, but the response to each of them is the same. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, let me close in a word of prayer, and then we'll move to the Lord's, to the Lord's Supper. Father, we come before you now. And Lord, I confess that so often we think we have to do something else. We have to do more. We need something more, but you tell us that you have given us all we need in Christ. You are such an abundantly generous and gracious God that you say, you don't need to do all these rules to get right with me. 
You don't need a new a way to experience to get right with me. You don't have to beat yourself to get right with me. You simply need to embrace my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith and repent of your sin. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we do not need to run around trying to figure out how. We don't need to run around and figure out what to do. It's been done. As we saw, we have all we need. We've been filled with him. We've been filled with Christ. So we don't do to earn. We don't need to step outside your word. We don't need to suffer because Christ suffered. We simply need to rest in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.